Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Occupy Interview. This is episode 11. I'm here with our uh, co-host, Terry Bain. Uh, I'm Mark Lard. James will not be joining us this week. Hopefully, he'll be back uh, next time for our next episode. And today, our guest is uh, Dr. Edwin Vieira, uh, who is a uh, holds four degrees from Harvard, and... Uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, Dr. Vieira, and uh, let us know a little bit more about your background and uh, and what, what what you're here to talk about. Well, my background is relatively simple. I spent many years as a litigating attorney, specializing in constitutional law, and more recently, actually, for probably the past uh, 10, 15 years, uh, I focused primarily on writing. Uh, sometimes lecturing. So my material appears on newsreviews.com, one word, newswithviews.com. And uh, I produce a number of books dealing with monetary questions, in particular the Federal Reserve System, uh, history of American money and banking, constitutional problems involved therewith. The uh, main book there is called Pieces of Eight. Uh, that's available on Amazon. Uh, I've written on uh, the problems of judicial review, so-called judicial supremacy. I have a book out called uh, How to Dethrone the Imperial Judiciary. That's also available on Amazon. And over the last, uh, oh, close now, probably to 10 years, uh, I've been working on the issue of the militia of the several states, as the Constitution calls them and what needs to be done uh, to revitalize those institutions so that the American people can uh, gain control of uh, what's called homeland security at the local and state level. And the first book I have out on that is called Constitutional Homeland Security. Uh, I guess that's not a surprising title. And that's also available on Amazon. And I'm now finishing in the process, last editorial steps in the process, of finishing really the second volume in that series, what will be a series. And that should be coming out, I hope, uh, the beginning of next year, given the vicissitudes of printing. It's a pretty long book. It's about 2,000 pages long. But it goes into quite a historical um, analysis of uh, the colonial period, pre-constitutional era, uh, what the militia were, how they were structured, organized, functioned, and so forth, and then takes that knowledge and applies it to interpretation of the Constitution, and then takes all of that and extrapolates it to what needs to be done uh, today in terms of uh, regaining control, essentially, over that whole area uh, that the Constitution really leaves, not to people in Washington, D.C., but to people at the state and the local level. And otherwise, I've been working over the past, uh, let me say, probably eight, nine years, since uh, early in 2000, uh, with state legislators, wherever they seem to be knowledgeable enough on the subject, uh, to try and convince uh, the state legislatures to enact statutes that would adopt alternative currency systems on the supposition that in the near future we're going to see a major crisis in the Federal Reserve System, probably all, all international uh, banking structures that are operating on fractional reserves uh, will have that same kind of problem. And, of course, when that happens if you don't have an alternative currency available, a system set up uh, to be able to move away from a collapsing currency, uh, all sorts of economic problems arise. Uh, so I've been uh, preparing model statutes and uh, lecturing people on that subject, putting things out on the Internet. And basically that's, uh, that's the background. Two areas which I would say I'm most uh, interested in recently are monetary reform and uh, revitalization of the militia and how those two actually uh, need to interact, given the circumstances that this country is facing. I think it's very interesting that you uh, mentioned doing the uh, alternative currencies uh, on the local level, and certainly, see, certainly it seems to me that when, uh, when things do go awry again, uh, as uh, many of us expect them to, with the monetary system, certainly those states uh, 
which have put an alternative currency into place, and uh, of course some have, most have not. Uh, it seems those uh, those states are probably going to do a whole lot better than the, than the rest of the country, I would think. Well, I would think that in the long run, everyone is going to have to come around to that way of thinking. Because the great danger of a breakdown of a, of a currency unit, which is really what we're talking about here, Federal Reserve note system that we have, all prices of goods and services are denominated in so-called dollars. And what that really means is payment in Federal Reserve notes or payment in bank balances, which are essentially the same thing, electronic form. And if that system goes into hyperinflationary meltdown, which given the level of debt in this country and in the world is probably a likely scenario, then at some stage in the course of that breakdown, prices will no longer be denominated in Federal Reserve notes. No one will take that stuff anymore. I mean, what are the prices of things in Weimar Marks or French Aston Yachts or Hungarian pangos or whatever currency you want to mention that has gone through inflationary destruction. Well, then what happens? At that stage, the entire price structure becomes deranged. People really don't know what the price of bread is, even locally, uh, let alone in those areas in the country where bread is coming from you know, 50 miles away or whatever. Uh, transportation system, of course, is going to break down because people aren't sure of what prices are across long distances. Uh, it's something that would really be unprecedented, I think, in certainly our lifetimes, our our history. Uh, but it's the danger that's looming on the horizon. The alternative currency approach is to say, essentially, if that were to happen, we have to have something in place so that people can, A, use a new currency, and B, one would hope, would have already anticipated this problem to a certain extent, and so some of the price structure, at least, would now be denominated in the new currency unit. So if the old system breaks down, the new one can simply take up the slack and we can move forward from there. Uh, the grave difficulty is that very large numbers of people don't believe this is going to happen. Uh, and so they don't want to do anything. It's kind of denial of reality. And we've seen this happen in other countries uh, serially over the last century, century and a half. Uh, and to say it's not going to happen here, given the level of debt, this country has incurred is, I would say, rather an irresponsible approach to take. But there it is. And I keep telling people, well, it's like insurance. You need my insurance for a car. You don't expect to go out and run over the little blind girl in a wheelchair on the crosswalk. Nobody expects that that will happen. But on the assumption that it might happen, every responsible person has and is usually required by law to have a fixed amount, minimum fixed amount of insurance. Well, Alternative currencies are essentially an insurance policy. If the Federal Reserve collapses, they're there and they can be used. If, on the other hand, Mr. Bernanke or whoever takes over his position eventually uh, are so clever that they can correct this system and it will continue to function, well, then the alternative currency essentially uh, sits in the drawer in the same way that an insurance policy would uh, and is not used. Unlike an insurance policy, though, the type of alternative currency systems I've been proposing, some other people are proposing, are not very expensive at all, especially if it's done at the state level so that you have one institution, some kind of state depository or whatever, uh, is set up to handle that for the entire state and the economy of scale, obviously, in that type of situation. And it's very inexpensive in comparison to the alternative, which is how one would survive economically in the context of a currency breakdown. But as I say, the difficulty is you run into people in the state legislatures who have no background in this. They're usually not economists, if you will. They probably haven't studied the problems of the Federal Reserve or central banking, fractional reserve banking. Uh, and their attitude tends to be, when one talks to them, starts to propose this alternative currency, approach. They say, well, that's not an issue for the state government. That's an issue for Congress. That's an issue for the U.S. Treasury. That's an issue for the Federal Reserve. I mean, I hear that all the time. That's an issue for the Federal Reserve, even though what we're talking about is a breakdown of the Federal Reserve. And then the next step, after you convince them, well, maybe it is an issue for the state, given the state has constitutional responsibilities to its people. 
the next uh, dodge, if you will, is, well, who's that, who else is doing this? What other state is doing this? And, of course, the answer to that is, well, somebody has to be first. If we all wait for everybody else to do it, it'll never be done. But my impression is it's really a matter of lack of education and a, a certain sloth. They don't want to do it, rather pan it off on somebody else. And then there's a certain amount of fear because some legislators with whom I've worked who have, in fact, proposed bills along this line have become the targets of, number one, ridicule in the mass media. Six o'clock news goes after them. Or B, there's a campaign to uh, remove them from office or at least defeat them at the next election. So they have political repercussions coming at them. And that's uh, obviously a great deterrent to anyone who's in public office who wants to remain in public office. He wants to be reelected, and he doesn't want to be uh, demonized uh, in the local media. Uh, for taking a position that may be considered to be eccentric because he's one of the, you know, one or two in the whole legislature who will understand what it really entails. And so they back off. That's a problem. And of course, we're running out of time here because the longer we wait, the closer we get to the, uh, what I would call catastrophic event, hyperinflationary event. Those things happen very quickly, relatively speaking. In, in Germany Certainly. in 23, they had inflation for about two years rather large inflation for two years and by the time they got to the middle of 1923 uh, it took six months thereafter middle of July June, end of June, July 1923 to the end of November last week in November, first week in December and they destroyed the currency so it was about six months it's not a, a terrifically long process then, it will probably be quicker now because of the technology we have obviously they didn't have uh, the Internet, for instance, they have instantaneous quotation of, of currency prices throughout the world in, in 1923, which we do today. So it would probably be uh, a, a catastrophe that occurs in a much shorter length of time. And, of course, then your difficulty becomes it's impossible to predict exactly when it will happen. And you can't put in the alternative currency very easily in the course of the collapse the Germans didn't go completely back to a primitive barter system because in 1923 Germany there was something of the order of 20 or 25 alternative currencies already circulating in Germany. And they had Austrian marks, they had Danish krona, they had uh, Swiss francs, Belgian francs, French francs, English pounds, American dollars. You run down the list. And of course gold and silver circulating as well. So what you discover historically during that period is people on their own in Germany began to use alternative currencies in their business and, and personal affairs, financial affairs. The government didn't do it, but people did. So there was something of a, of a black market in alternative currency prices. And as a result, the entire economy didn't completely collapse back to a primitive barter system because people did know the price of goods and services and some of these other currencies, and they were able to hang on long enough until the German monetary system was stabilized and a new mark was introduced. And there's our difficulty today. If you look at America, for instance, it might not be true so much in, in Europe but because they're used to dealing with alternative currencies. They're here in the United States. If you don't happen to live on the Canadian border, if you don't happen to live on the Mexican border, where you might be, say, Windsor, you know, Ontario, uh, or um, one of the towns on the Tijuana around the Mexican border, uh, where you might be dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with both Canadian dollars, U.S. dollars, or Mexican pesos and U.S. dollars. The average American has no experience whatsoever with alternative currencies. I would bet if you ask the average American in the street uh, to define an alternative currency and how it would be used, he, wouldn't, he couldn't tell you. They just have no experience with that. So until that system is set up, and you give people experience with it, and primarily it would be done initially by having uh, the state collect a certain amount of its taxes. Right. Would I be correct in assuming that uh, uh, you mentioned how uh, Germany, they, they started using the, uh, uh, the, uh, the 
the French franc, some of the other European currencies, but with today's kind of globalized banking system, uh, don't uh, don't the uh, foreign currencies essentially become uh, rather useless as a, as a alternative currency since everything's so integrated these days? They're likely to be uh, falling at the same time, even if perhaps not at the same rate. Well, that's a yeah. That's that's a problem today. It wasn't a problem right. then. Yeah, exactly what I'm saying. Analogy yeah. because of the existence of these alternatives today, the Federal Reserve System being Erzat's World Central Bank, if you will, uh, not officially so, but it functions that way. And of course, you have the euro, so they have a single currency over there, and that's tied in uh, to the Federal Reserve System, at least kind of in the shadows, behind the scenes of this, one supporting the other. Federal Reserve System supporting it. Euro structure. Uh, yes, there's one of your short answers that you would see all of the European system coming down and the American system coming down as well. Uh, and then what would be introduced? There's your real problem if you haven't set up one of these alternative systems. So the people are beginning to use it at least and they have some idea of what at least some prices are in terms of the alternative currency. It becomes very difficult to set up from scratch a new price structure. Just imagine if the Federal Reserve notes disappeared tomorrow. What would the price of bread be? That seems like a pretty yeah, simple certainly. question. But the answer is a little bit difficult to, to come up with. Uh, so that's what I've been trying to do. And, of course, we run into political, really a, a political stone wall of a sort. Uh, and then another thing, uh, the alternative currency matter, obviously, is uh, potentially threatening to the Federal Reserve System because even if the Federal Reserve System didn't implode or explode in mean, hyperinflation, whichever you know, whichever way you want the balloon to go in the picture, an alternative currency would be in competition with Federal Reserve notes. Yes. And if that alternative currency were uh, one that had been properly devised and was economically sound, uh, it might very well prove superior in that kind of competition. The market would simply stop, start using it to the exclusion of Federal Reserve notes. And the next thing you know, there'd be terrific pressure in the Federal Reserve banks oh, yeah. to reform their monetary policies. And I don't think they want to do that. So th theoretically, this system, even if you didn't have a catastrophic collapse of the Federal Reserve system, could put terrific pressure on the system uh, to mend its ways. I'll give you an example of just one particular state. I won't mention which one it was. But they've had an alternative currency bill put in in the past. Uh, didn't get very far, but it was encouraging in the direction that the thing was moving. And this session, there was a, a caucus, I guess you'd call it, of the members. Of, I think it's the Republican Party. And the leadership says, absolutely not. There will be no alternative currency bill introduced this session. It won't get out of committee. It won't get hearings. Anything out. Somebody can put it in. Can't stop you from putting it in, but it will go nowhere. That's official. So, uh, how did that happen? Well, I'm sure a call was made from Washington and New York City to the people there in that state capital and said, "Squelch this! Don't let this continue." So they're very worried about it at that level as well. And the only people that seem to me aren't paying any attention here are the ones who get the most benefit from it, and that's your average American. There yeah. doesn't seem to be any uh, uh, groundswell of enthusiasm for something that I would think. Oh, it just makes a lot of sense, yeah. Would be essentially uh, a no-brainer. Yeah. Let, I protect myself. Let me ask you a quick question. Uh, we, we've got a question yeah. from our, uh, our streaming engineer in uh, Australia there, Brattery. Uh, and his question is, do you think that we can ever rid ourselves of the bane of the usury? in monetary systems? Well, I, I guess so. Uh, especially if what you're talking about is uh, infinite usury that comes from interest being charged for money created out of nothing. Right. right. <laughs> that. Yeah, I, I certainly would think that money created as debt would certainly fall within the category of usury, in my opinion. In a reasonably intelligent society, you simply outlaw that kind of thing. Or you make those kinds of contracts unenforceable. I mean, you don't, uh, it's not so much an outlaw 
quickly. Yes, yeah, somebody can do that, but then when they try to go into court and collect on that, the answer is no, we're not going to facilitate that kind of transaction. In the same way we don't facilitate gambling transactions, except in some states, Nevada or you know, New Jersey or whatever, where gambling is legal. You make your typical gambling contract with your bookie and see if the bookie can collect in state court, and the answer is no, neither can you. It's an unenforceable contract. Uh, it also might be wise to consider the difference between uh, uh, commercial loans, that is loans for investment, and loans for consumption, and never allow interest on loans for consumption. But I suppose the best answer to the whole thing would be to say, look, if you're in the, the banking business, which is really the aggregation of different people's money, and then the banker uses his expertise to invest that money in some way, and he earns a return, let's not call it interest, a return in this case, and then he pays some part of that return to the depositors as their proportionate share of the return. Uh, the best system is to require those kinds of transactions to be essentially um, joint venture transactions so that if I'm the banker here and I'm putting up a certain amount of money for industrial expansion, that money is my contribution as the joint venture to that project. I'm not entitled to get back my money and an interest payment no matter what happens. I'm entitled to get back my money and perhaps some profit if the business venture succeeds. So I become a risk taker along with the other people in that business venture. And of course, my depositors become risk takers because they're using me as their agent to invest in this project. So that's really not never a matter of interest in those kinds of transactions. It's a matter of profit. If the business generates a profit, then I receive my share back, depending on what I've contributed to it. But I'm not entitled to an interest payment no matter what happens. And that's probably the best of all possible worlds, because that requires the banker, the, the money investor, uh, to look very, very uh, carefully with something of a cynical eye at that project to see whether there is really a profit to be made in the marketplace. Whereas the banker today, especially when he's backed up by the U.S. Treasury with a bailout if he's made a stupid investment, he's entitled to be paid that interest return no matter whether the business works or not. Well, that puts him in an interesting position because now he can be relatively irresponsible with that money, because he has a claim against uh, that venture, uh, whether profits are made or not. So I would think that would be the way to approach the whole matter, is to change the nature of uh, investment banking from making loans to what I would call participations in the project. And then you'd separate the, the investment banking operation from deposit banking, and deposit banking would be exactly that. People would put their money in the banks for safekeeping, and then the banks would uh, facilitate transfers of those monies by check or electronically or whatever as transactions are made, and the banks would collect some small fee for that process. And you'd separate those two so that a deposit bank could not use depositors' money to put into investments. And similarly, the investment banker would not be promising to pay the money that he's already invested in some project to some depositor on demand, which is always the problem with the fractional reserve banks, ultimately. I mean, they have deposits that are subject to withdrawal on demand, which are not there, because right. the bankers have taken some of that money, and in many instances, a lot of a lot, large percentage of that money, and they've invested it or made it offered loans. It's not called an investment because loans sometimes are not investments at all. Uh, they go to losing projects or they go to consumption. Um, and then when the depositors come in larger numbers than the bank has anticipated and has to withdraw their funds, the bank suddenly discovers that it's illiquid. And now we have a crisis, and those things historically occurred again and again and again in the 19th century, uh, 20th century, even after they created the Federal Reserve System. We had the huge crisis in 1932, uh, 32, 33. Uh, and then obviously we've had some in more recent years here, even with all the regulation and so forth that came out of the Roosevelt era and, and subsequently. And it all comes back to that faulty model 
of fractional reserve banking, number one, and then number two, the banks uh, loaning that money out with this interest, this fixed interest premium, when the banks uh, have no uh, risk in the project itself. So if we restructured the banking rules, I think we'd get around uh, probably 90% of the problems we have today, and then the rest could be solved by the criminal courts because they are dealing with embezzlement and fraud of one kind or another. We see that now. It's kind of, I guess, the way the banks think that they can run everything that's on that basis, right? Because none of them go to jail. Um, but I don't think it would require, uh, you know, a, a tremendous um, reversal of the kinds of structure we have today. Just set up uh, essentially separate hats that the bankers would have to wear depending on what function they're performing, and then hermetically seal so, one. So essentially, back to back to Glass Steagall and. Well, yeah, Glass-Steagall yeah. is that basic idea. I would go further yeah. than Glass-Steagall, I think, okay. but it was that basic idea. Uh, and if those steps are taken, and then you come down very, very harshly from a criminal and civil point of view on the bankers that uh, violate the rules, and I would make that, you know, the, the, one of the real problems here, again, is responsibility, that we've already seen that these banking structures are terribly dangerous again and again and again. We've had uh, major financial breakdowns with terrible social consequences because of these banking structures. So I'd say, all right, in that area where there may be some gray, uh, the overlap between the deposit bank and the loan bank and so forth and so on, what we're going to do is, first we're going to require complete disclosure, which we don't have now. And we want to know everything that this bank is doing because that's the only way any depositor can be sure of what risk he's assuming when he puts his money in the hands of the banker, whether it's a deposit bank or whether it's a loan bank. And then number two, we want to know about the finances of the partners, officers, directors, whatever, the, the, the chief controllers of these banks, uh, for two reasons. Number one, because they should have personal liability. This idea that bankers or corporations, for that matter, uh, people should not have personal liability. No, the entity has liability. It's a very dangerous proposition. They should have personal liability. We want to know what their finances are. Can they pay? If the bank fails, will these people be able to pay? Or is it that these people are taking all their, their assets and putting them in the name of their mother-in-law? Huh? In which we might expect that maybe there's going to be some hanky-panky in the operation of that that bank. So you need complete disclosure of the way the banks operate. You need complete disclosure of the way their officers, directors, trustees, whatever, partners uh, operate in, our, our finance, in their personal lives as well as in their professional lives. And then thirdly, you have to have personal liability attached to those people so that there's no immunity involved in the situation. And I think if you did all of those things, you'd have a very, very um, well-disciplined banking structure, and you would probably never see another bank crisis in world history. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're quite right. Uh, Jerry? I think we could do that. I mean, at, this, at this stage, we could actually put something like that through because people are now pretty much fed up all over the world. They're fed up with what this bank oh, is. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we, we've had the, uh, uh, you know, other countries are actually uh, doing uh, things about it. Uh, you know, we've had the banker arrests in uh, Iceland. We've got the uh, right. banker arrests in Ireland. We've got uh, bankers being executed in Iran. And uh, <laughs> there's got to be some enforcement. Otherwise, in any, you know, what's that? I said they execute other people in Iran, not just banks. Well, certainly, certainly. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Ireland, if you think of Ireland and Iceland. Hmm. which one would think are kind of milk-toast countries. You don't think of those as being populated with you know, fierce populations. Right. Uh, but look what Iceland did. Yep. I mean, Iceland Absolutely. came out very, very strongly. Yes, they did I mean, very yeah, well in handling their situation. Too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Terry, I believe you had some... Uh, uh, just to uh, to change tax here about halfway through the show, uh, you had some questions uh, regarding the militia, I believe. I, I did. I, I just wanted to throw one follow-up question in there, and I may be going to catch you yeah. off guard on this one. Uh, but the uh, the Liberty Dollar, I don't 
know whether you remember that, Dr. Vieira. I'm calling from, sure. from Evansville, Indiana. I'm part of Occupy right. Evansville, Occupy Southern Indiana. Um, he was found guilty, and you can't see it, but we've got a link up, and it'll be with the page on the archive version. Uh, the local Liberty Dollar architect found guilty, and this was as of March of last year. Uh, can you, uh, w what was that all about? I, I really, even living here, didn't really understand how they managed to find that to be illegal. Well, that's uh, Bernard Von Outhouse. Yes, sir. And the Liberty Dollar. Yes, now, they managed to find that illegal because there's a statute that has essentially two prongs to it. Uh, one is more or less straightforward counterfeiting. If you generate a coin that's in resemblance of United States or foreign coinage, that's illegal. And then the other part of that statute says, and also if you generate one that's of original design, that's illegal. Now, the second half of that statute is plainly unconstitutional. But the first half, the Constitution provides the power for Congress uh, to deal with counterfeiting. So that part is legitimate. Now, the Liberty Dollar problem was, maybe is, because he's still on appeal, so we're not sure how that's going to come out. Those Liberty Dollars had designs that were in some people's eyes at least, similar to the designs on some U.S. coinage. And also they had dollar denominations on them. They said $10 or $20, whatever. And I think they used, uh, instead of in, in God we trust as a, as a motto, they used trust in God. So there were some similarities. And that's really what the government prosecutors used as the basis of their case was that there were too many similarities or the similarities were sufficiently close that there could be some kind of confusion basically and of course confusion leads into the impl implication of fraud right you confuse someone for the purpose of defrauding them and as I remember that trial the government put on a numismatist uh, coinage expert and they showed pictures of US coinage and compared them to pictures of you know, Liberty dollar coinage and this fellow said well you see it's similar in this way and it's similar in that way and so forth and so on now I always thought that was a kind of duplicitous way to, to run the case because it really isn't what some expert in coinage would see as the similarities because he's used to looking at those kinds of things. It's really what the average person in the marketplace would think if he saw one of these Liberty Dollars as opposed to a U.S. coin. But that's what they did in any event. That was the government's approach. And, of course, it was in front of a jury. And that's the difficulty that Von uh, Nauthouse has. Because if, if the case turns on were his coins or are his coins... Uh, sufficiently similar to United States coinage, so there's this element of uh, overlap, if you will, ocular visual overlap, and therefore there's some confusion, and therefore they're in resemblance to, in the way the statute uses that language. And a jury finds that to be true. And there's the problem. And a jury finds that to be true. Then he's in very serious difficulty on appeal, because generally speaking, unless there's been some serious error in the, in the trial. The judge didn't introduce or didn't allow certain evidence to be introduced or the judge allowed evidence to be introduced that shouldn't have been introduced so that the jury was swayed by improper evidence or could have been swayed by improper evidence. Usually appeals courts do not reverse jury determinations. That's why the jury's there. The jury is there to look at the facts and make its own determination as to which side of the line those facts fall on. And so if the question is, do these Liberty Dollars resemble United States coinage sufficiently so that they come under this statute? And the jury says, yes, they do, having looked at them. You know, maybe the case wasn't presented properly, but nonetheless, having looked at them, the jury having made that decision, that's usually the end of the matter.
And the appeals court said, well, jury determination, we can't overturn that. Affirmed. Go to jail. Which kind of... Very bad case, right, in general, because I don't think that there were... uh, It just seems to be difficult to believe that there were a lot of people out there fooled uh, (laughs) into thinking that these Liberty Dollars were somehow United States coinage. I mean, I've talked to Bernard Van Anhaus on numerous occasions, and that certainly was never, ever uh, the position that he expressed to me. This was a completely different, this was an alternative monetary system that he was, was creating. That was why created. I wanted wanted to touch base with you on that, because we were just talking about alternative monetary systems, and he did try to create one. If anything, it would have been the opposite of fraud would be seeming to me, since one of those silver dollars would be worth, what, 10 or 11 by silver content alone? Of a oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, there was no question that he was he was certainly not putting out uh, supposed silver coins that were made out of lead. Right. Right. Well, he put out an ounce silver coin, it was an ounce. He put an ounce gold coin, it was an ounce. Uh, he was perfectly honest in what he was doing, but he, uh, he fell into this trap, unfortunately, of making his coinage look like coinage. And I think that uh, there were people who advised him early on that he would be far better off if he didn't make them round, made them square or oblong or something, so that they would really be differentiable from typical coins. And people would look at these things and say, oh, well, this is a different thing. We can use it as money, but it's obviously not a standard coin. And then I think some of the designs he used, uh, once again, had... Uh, overtones to them, if you will, where people could say, oh, well, that's a Liberty Head, and the Liberty Head's used on United States coinage, uh, slightly different in, in design or size or what have you. But I suppose to the average person, one Liberty Head is similar to the other. And uh, difficulty with a federal trial is uh, they really don't give a lot of leeway. In my experience, they don't give a lot of leeway to the defense counsel. And Bernard Bernardhaus had the problem that because they took all of his gold and silver in a raid early on in the process, not only his but gold and silver he was holding for other people. And as a result, he was left with very little in terms of financial resources in order to hire uh, you know, a legal defense team. That kind of also, go, pardon me. Uh, that kind of dovetails also with we had discussed while we were off air another one of the the hot topics. Uh, your take on jury nullification, if we could go into that, because that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, do you think that had, would that have possibly changed the outcome? And what do you recommend as far as, what do informed juries need to know? Well, I don't know whether it would have changed the outcome, because if you had one person on the on the jury who looked at that prosecution and said this is just a basically unjust prosecution, um, you don't know what the effect would be. It might have hung the jury. It might not have convinced them. It might have gotten a uh, not guilty verdict. It might have just simply hung the jury, and there would have been another trial with a different jury. Uh, over the years, I've looked at these people, or some of the people, I suppose, who are dealing with what's called jury nullification. And the first thing we have to understand is if you go back to the beginning of this country and you understand what the rule was in Anglo-American law, because, of course, we were an English colony, right? English colonies, the rule was clear. You read Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. He says, well, of course, juries in both civil and criminal cases can decide not to enforce a particular law with which they're presented. No question about that. And you actually find very early on the first uh, or second volume of the Supreme Court reports when the Supreme Court was acting, acting as a trial court in some cases. Um, there's a famous uh, jury instruction that was given in one of those cases uh, where the, it was Chief Justice Jay uh, tells the jury Specifically, they can do that. They can essentially nullify or refuse to follow the law uh, that the judge presents to them. Now, the difficulty today is uh, that they've, uh, the establishment, if you will, the legal establishment, has gone away from that, and they're more and more treating juries uh, as, I, I don't know, as mushrooms. You know, keep them in the dark as much <laughs> as possible and feed them what you want to feed them, and then you get a result. And so the juries... In, are no longer being allowed to hear the arguments that are made by the attorneys in the course of the trial. Um, material is simply kept from them. The trial is a very sanitized process for the typical jury today. Uh, jury nullification people are out there saying, well, 
we want to inform individuals that when they get on the jury, they have the right, if they look at the law that's being applied to that defendant, to determine for themselves whether that law is just or unjust, constitutional or unconstitutional. I guess those are the same things, essentially. If it's unconstitutional, it must be unjust, right? Uh, and refuse to enforce it, no matter what the facts are. This law simply shouldn't be applied. Now, the great difficulty with the practical matters when you go into a what's called voir dire, where the lawyers are choosing or rejecting jurors before the trial, that's one of the questions that typically comes up from the judge if, say, the prosecuting attorney doesn't raise it. And the judge will ask uh, the jurors, will you follow my instructions and take the law as I give it to you in the course of this trial? And they all dutifully nod their heads, yes, because anyone who says no, anyone who is a jury nullifier, honest jury nullifier, and says no, he's excused right away. He goes home. They don't want him anywhere near that trial. He disappears. Now, the second problem is assume someone says yes, uh, I guess dishonestly, says yes, I'll follow uh, your statement of the law, Mr. Judge. And then during jury determination, during, excuse me, during deliberations after the uh, evidence is presented, he's in the jury room and he starts trying to convince the other jurors to nullify the law, say this law is unjust for whatever reason. And some of those jurors then turn him in to the judge and say, this guy's in here trying to make us not follow your instructions. I have heard of cases where jurors of that kind have been prosecuted for perjury because they took their oath before the trial to follow the judge's instruction, and then they walk in the back room knowingly violate that oath. But there is, a, in, in a sense, there's a way that sort of circumvents all of these things, and that is every juror, in such a criminal case at least, the evidence has to be beyond a reasonable doubt in that juror's mind before he can vote to convict. So a, a juror can say, honestly, look, I, I just didn't believe certain part of the evidence that the prosecutors presented. And maybe his belief is, uh, or his, his mind focuses on this because he thinks that the whole process is unjust, statute's unjust, or, or whatever. Or he thinks the man's being railroaded, or he thinks the police are committing perjury, or that you know, the prosecutor is doing this for political, whatever it is. Right. He goes in the back, the other jurors, I don't believe this, and I'll tell you why. And he starts arguing with them about the you know, reasonable basis for doubt. It's perfectly legitimate. I mean, freedom of belief is an absolute, absolutely protected uh, fundamental right under the First Amendment. There's actually a Supreme Court decision, Cantwell versus Connecticut, that says that freedom of belief is absolute. So if I come to the conclusion I believe that the evidence is not sufficient to convict someone, that's the end of the matter. And nothing to do with nullification in the sense that most of these jury nullification people talk about it. Because I'm not saying, well, I think the statute's invalid. That's unconstitutional. That may be the thing in the back of my mind, which is raising the hackles, right? Having my hair stand on end. But I feel this whole prosecution is bad, and therefore I'm going to look very, 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 very carefully at the evidence. But my conclusion and my reason for finding the defendant not guilty is that I have a reasonable doubt. All right? right? And there's no challenge to that. If a juror says, I have a reason, actually, he doesn't even have to give a reason to the other jurors. He says, I don't believe it. I looked at that, you know, that uh, witness, that policeman testifying, and boy, he looked shifty to me. His eyes kept darting back and forth. He was perjuring himself. He was lying. I don't believe it. I just have a feeling. I don't believe him. End of discussion. What are you going to do with that person? There's no and way you can get around that. And that's what a jury is for. That's what a jury's for. I mean, sometimes it really comes down to that. They see someone testifying, and he's shifting around. His body language suggests to him that he's, he's dodging the question, and they disbelieve him. And, this, and brings us, this brings us back to if you break out your copy of the Declaration of Independence, you'll see one of the specifications that a pretty fair lawyer named Mr. Jefferson put in there uh, was the complaint against the King of England for transporting uh, people for trial back to England because they were afraid, as I understand it historically, that there would have been no convictions by the people here. 
evidently. Well, I'll give you I'll give you the classic example of that, which is 1772. You know, you always think of a war of independence started in 1775 and conquered in Lexington, Lexington conquered Battle. Uh, actually, it was 1772 in Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island was a smuggler's paradise. And they were obviously trying to evade the various uh, duties and imposts that the British had set up and to control trade. So there were a number of British cutters and schooners in Narragansett Bay that were looking for smugglers of one kind or another. And one of them was uh, the, the ship Gatsby, uh, commanded by a Lieutenant Huddleston, who was apparently a pretty officious character, troublemaker. In fact, they had so many uh, warrants against him coming out of Newport, Rhode Island, that he didn't dare step off his ship when it docked because the sheriff would have arrested him. But as long as, was, as long as he was on a British naval vessel, he was immune. Well, he's in Newport Harbor, and he sees this ship the, uh, clearing the harbor, and he, he recognized the ship, and he, he had always suspected the captain of being a smuggler, so he takes off after him. And the captain led him across Narragansett Bay, and knew the tides and so forth, the shore waters much better than Huddleston did, and he led him across a sand spit called Namquit Point. And Huddleston's ship was uh, of too great a draft, and it ran aground. So the smuggler, this let's call him Yankee Patriot, he goes up the bay to Providence, and he announces that the hated Gatsby is aground on Namquit Point and will be there for the next eight hours until the tide finally comes in. So John Brown, and this is not the John Brown of Harpers Ferry, but the John Brown of Providence, Rhode Island, after whom Brown University is now named, that family. Interesting. Second richest man in, in New England after John Hancock. Very wealthy man. The well, family was very wealthy. John Brown uh, meets with some of his cronies, these wealthy merchants in a place called Sabin's Tavern. And they organize uh, an attack on the Gatsby. And they send some boys with drums through the streets of Providence, uh, drumming up uh, what essentially amounts to a, a group of pirates. They get in a couple of whale boats and row down the bay to the Gatsby. John Brown leading them, by the way. And they board the Gatsby in a firefight, shoot the captain. He's wounded. He later recovers, but he's shot. Uh, take the crew, put them ashore, and burn the ship to the waterline. Now, this is piracy and treason. The king was very much upset about this, and he put out a proclamation with huge rewards and amnesty for any one of the underlings who would turn in the ringleaders. Okay? Everyone in Providence, and probably everyone throughout Rhode Island after a few days, knew who the ringleaders were, but nobody talked. And the king's proclamation went one step further. He said, once uh, witnesses are found or suspects are found, they had to be turned over to Admiral Montague in Boston, who was the head of the British Navy in that part of the colonies. And Admiral Montague will arrange for them to be sent back to England for trial. Right? And the reason the king wanted to do this, of course, because he knew that no one would ever be convicted in Rhode Island of a smuggling offense, right? or piracy or treason, for that matter. Well, this was a cause, uh, celebre, as they say, created a great stir because every colony in its charter had a provision that said that crimes committed in the colonies would be tried in the colony. And here were two crimes, piracy and treason, both you know, felonious crimes, and they would and should have been tried in the colony. So the word of this proclamation, and actually the king went further, they actually set up a little inquisition made up of the the governor of Rhode Island, I think. They had the chief justice of New York, chief justice of a number of high-ranked individuals who were set up on this committee to try and discover some facts, and they, they could come up with nothing. But the word spreads, and it goes down to Virginia, to the House of Burgesses. And if you read the list of the members of the House of Burgesses, and that well, it was Jefferson and Patrick Henry and Edmund Randolph and Peyton Bell. I mean, you run down this list of you know, all the great patriots. They were all there in that session. And they get the word from Providence that this has happened, and this was something that really incensed them. And so we can't have this, because if they take trial by jury away from us, you know, God knows what will happen to our liberties. That's the ultimate control, check and balance that we have in this system. 
So they proposed in the House of Burgesses the creation of the Committees of Correspondence. And then they sent letters to the assemblies, the legislatures of all the other colonies, encouraging them to set up these Committees of Correspondence for the purpose of sharing information about further kinds of abuses that the royal government might introduce. And of course, anyone who knows anything about the history of that period knows that it was the creation of the Committees of Correspondence that really formed the cement, if you will, that linked all the colonies together and then finally resulted in the creation of the Continental Congress and everything else that followed. And so it all goes back to that little episode. Now, I raise that little episode not simply because it's kind of, you know, it's there, but if you think about it, this fellow John Brown was second richest man in New England. He would have lost everything. Because for treason and piracy, especially for treason, piracy would have been hung, of course. <laughs> treason would have been drawn and quartered. <laughs> and all his property would have been forfeited. He would have been tainted as a traitor, and all of his property, real property and, and uh, personal property, would have been forfeited to the king. So he would have lost everything. His family would have lost everything. And yet he did it. And you think of John Hancock, who was supposedly the wealthiest man in New England at the time. Who were the Redcoats? coming to arrest in in Lexington on April the 19th of 1775. Well, one of the men, one of them was Sam Adams, who was the agitator, the demagogue from Boston. But the other one was John Hancock. Hancock was considered to be a leading radical in Massachusetts. And they were out to get him personally. So in those days, you had, just in New England, Rhode Island and, and Massachusetts, you have the two wealthiest men putting everything they had on the line. Towards now, these... if you look around today, uh, you, you don't quite see the same kind of dedication uh, to liberty. Perhaps we do. Government. Perhaps we're just not seeing it documented in the history book because it hasn't been written yet. Uh, well, that may be. And then the, the committees of correspondence, as you mentioned, led to committees of safety which led to the creation of upgraded militia, as I understand it, and that kind of brings us into we have about eight minutes left, and we can't even begin to touch on the wealth of knowledge you've got on this subject. But if you could give us an overview and then please come back. We want to talk to you about about that, but could you give us a quick shot at uh, of the militia? What's the history? Well, the is very simple. Uh, militia structures exist in this country from the very earliest days. You find in all the colonial charters some statement about the, uh, the proprietors, as they were called, the people who set up the colonies on behalf of the king, uh, organizing, training, arming, and so forth, the, the population. And the difference between here and England was, of course, they had very few people here and uh, dangers from the Indians or the French or the Spanish, so they had to arm everybody. So the militia from the very earliest days were the ultimate democratic institution. Everyone who wasn't a slave or perhaps a traitor or was you know, locked up in prison uh, was part of this structure. And it was based upon uh, universal or near-universal membership and universal armament. Everyone had to be trained and perform some kind of function from 16 to about 55 or so uh, because once you got to that age, uh, you had physical problems and you just couldn't perform. <laughs> and that was the history in all of the independent states and going back into the colonies when the Articles of Confederation first and the Constitution were ratified. So the Constitution talks about things called the militia of the several states, and these were entities that already existed. The Constitution took them in and incorporated them as part of the federal structure. They were already there. This isn't something for Congress to create. These are entities which are supposed to be formed at the state level, they're supposed to have certain characteristics. I can tell you exactly what they are if we had time to do it. Uh, and Congress's role in all of this is simply to provide some uh, what I call uniform training, arming, and disciplining so that the militia might be called forth to perform certain federal functions, execute the laws of the Union, express insurrections, repel invasions. And there you'd want to have those uh, establishments trained and, and equipped in a reasonably uniform manner. But otherwise, if one thinks about all of the things that might be involved in what we call homeland security, 
response to natural disasters, industrial accidents, whatever. You can run down a long list. None of that falls within federal authority, if you read the Constitution. The militia, however, are in existence for force of the Constitution. And all of those things would then be within the militia's competence. We could talk about food security. We could talk about alternative currencies. That could certainly be done through the militia and be done very quickly because you have everyone from 16, uh, taken 16 to 60 in the population as a member of the militia. And therefore, immediately you could uh, organize and, and adopt an alternative currency structure and bring everybody into it in an extremely short period of time. That's, so, that's so. so we, our problem is we don't have those structures today. Uh, they're simply not there. The National Guard is not a constitutional militia. It's actually an adjunct of the U.S. Army. And with four minutes, we can't even begin to explore right. all of the things that are needed here. And I really, really hope you'll come back and work with us on this, because this is another area. Of, I've been reading your what you've been writing for at least four years now, and it's really some of the most clear. It, it really is is information that that the people who are out there on the streets, uh, the Occupy people, getting the snot beat out of them from New York, which there's a link up. Uh, your alma mater, Harvard, has found. Uh, that there's possibly some police brutality. Uh, <laughs> your reaction possibly. was, this is news. <laughs> uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah. I, I think they went proven, possibly. Uh, and then on the other coast, we've got Anaheim, California. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, we've got a right. kid. Uh, there's a YouTube up, and, I, I again, I, I, we haven't really got time for it, but at the end of that YouTube, there's a kid who says, can't we just have justice? And that really is the whole point of what we're talking about here, that, that exactly. these, are, these aren't historic characters from a storybook. John Hancock isn't just what you call your name when you're writing something. It's there because he had risked it all. He had pledged, as it says in the Declaration, his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. And they put it all on the line. And I think you're seeing from one end of this country to the other right now, there are heroes out there. Um, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them for standing, and I'm really proud of you for standing, Doc. You've been at this for a long time, and I, this is really great. I, I, I really hope you'll be back with us here. We need to hear what you've got to say. Yeah, let's do it again and, and, and talk about the militia, because that's a uh, very uh, rich, if you will, issue that we can discuss for as many hours as you'd like. Mark Lauer, you got anything? for? we got about two minutes left. Uh, no, I, I don't think I have anything that can be addressed that quickly. I do think we definitely <laughs> should get him back on to uh, speak more about the militia and uh, about this idea you brought up of the um, using the militia to uh, guard against uh, uh, vote fraud. And uh, let, let's definitely do that. And uh, why don't you... Uh, uh, doctor, go ahead and uh, uh, repeat those uh, those plugs for your books and uh, the uh, internet news site you uh, write for occasionally, and uh, and uh, get those plugs in there a second time so our uh, listeners know where to go uh, once again. Okay, uh, the internet site that has a complete archive of mine is called News with. Views. One word: newswithviews.com. Go to the homepage on the left. There's a list of contributors. You find my name. It's all there, uh, sequentially by date. And then the the books that I have now in print that are available on money, on the judiciary, and on militia. Uh, just look me up, Edwin Vieira, on Amazon.com. Where else, right? And uh, you'll find them. We've got those links, and we will put those with both the archive versions. A lot of it is also on the uh, live stream so that we could get some audience feedback. Uh, again, thanks for standing, Doc. It's, a, it's an honor to, to finally get a chance to talk to you. Uh, take us out, Mark Clark. Well, once again, uh, this has been Occupy Interview uh, number 11 uh, with our guest Edwin Vieira. 
Uh, as we said, we're going to try and get him back. I believe we have a guest uh, on for next week. I believe I'll have to check with James on that when we can get in touch with him again. And uh, But maybe we can get him back for the next one after that if it works out with his schedule for uh, episode 13. Uh, once again... Tara. And, show. Oh, yes, and uh, be sure to listen to... Uh, in- oh, God, I can't remember the name of it. It's Instinct... <laughs> True Sync Radio, True Sync Radio, not in sync, not in sync, (laughs) True Sync Radio. (laughs) Uh, Be sure to look for that uh, and uh, and give a listen. Uh, Other than that, uh, we're signing off. Everybody have a great week, and we'll catch you at the next show.